which I wanted to give out a Dafli Mood, a study sheet. So if you just want to give like a handful of people and they'll pass it around, I think that'll help to get it in time. Um, these are some sources here I'd love to look at as we have some brief words this evening. I felt as though it, we wouldn't, wouldn't be doing justice to our tradition if we allowed the moment of what's happening right now, especially in Syria, to go without comment. And I wanted to take some time with you this evening, if that's okay, with your permission, to have you join me in the process that I would go through in a time like this, which is to look at the Jewish text. And in times of conflict, in times of great apprehension, to see the, what the wisdom of Jewish tradition has to offer us in such a complex and such a challenging moment. No doubt all of you share in my concern as we watch the news come in from Syria, and I don't know if you've seen this, but the, the non-American uh, media are covering it perhaps in a bit more of a, I don't say gruesome, in a little more of an honest way, and the pictures coming in from Syria and the reports um, are enough to break your heart and to make your stomach churn that humanity would be um, able to do something like that. And it's something that I'm sure is on a lot of your minds as well right now as we think about what's happening in Syria as well as other parts of the world, but especially Syria right now, and as the U.S. contemplates action against Syria. So I thought it might be helpful to think a little bit about Jewish views on ethical warfare, on when war can occur and how does it occur, uh, looking at the wisdom of the Torah, the Bible, and our sages overall. So we're going to be using this page here. If you want to look at it with me, that's, that's nice to know. But don't feel, if you don't get one, it's okay. You can follow along as well. First, before we look at the first source, let's just state as a foundation that Judaism clearly understands war as a reality. The Torah is full of war. In fact, the name for war, milchama, shares the same shorsh, the same root as the word as lechem, bread, as ever since there's been lechem, people have been fighting over it with milchamot. Leaders in the Torah, such as Abraham, Moses, and later David and Deborah, are highlighted for their, their, their military prowess. God is even called Ish Milchama in the Song of the Sea, Shirat Hayam, as we are marching to freedom out of Egypt. Right there next to Micha Mocha is a section of God being likened to a man of war. While the Torah and prophets call for peace, it's not always so clear. So I wanted to show you the first two sources here. The first two sources are from the prophets Micah and Joel, and it's fitting that we read them now because on Shabbat Shuvah there are three different Haftarah selections, three different sections from the prophets one would read, from Jeremiah, as Canterbury mentioned already, and then from Micah. In fact, we read the part from Micah from which we derive the ritual of Tashlech, of casting out our sins into the water, and this is the only time of the calendar when we read from the prophet Joel as a part of our systematic Haftarah readings. Micah gives us perhaps one of the most famous, ubiquitous sections of Torah, especially for those of us who grew up going to Jewish summer camp. We probably all know the words of Lo Yisagoy El Goy Cherev, the Yilmodu Od Milchama, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Raise your hand if you're familiar with that section. You've heard that before. Let's look at another one you maybe have not heard before. These are the words of Joel. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. 
Perhaps even more notable that Joel and Micah are contemporaries, both living at the same time as the Babylonian exile. And so they are dealing with modern multinational politics and coming at it with very different perspectives. Micah clearly the pacifist, Joel clearly more of the pragmatist in talking about taking arms at this time. And I love this about the Hebrew Bible, that this is a circuitous text which conflicts itself. And here we have two prophets quoting one another, contemporaries who are arguing the exact opposite point and showing our own conflict when it comes to war and how do we approach it. Now moving from the Tanakh, the, the first real text we would look at when stating laws of war would have to be Maimonides' text Mishnah Torah, which is the first attempt to codify Jewish law from the 11th century CE. Maimonides himself has a worldview living in Fostat, Egypt, but living at the fulcrum of different societies of Muslims, Catholics, and Jews within a heterogeneous setting, um, and clearly uh, having fled southern Spain from Muslim invasions and coming through the land of Palestine to Egypt, he is well versed in um, military conflict. There is one of the many chapters of Mishnah Torah, it's different laws or Hilchot, um, and one of them is called Hilchot Milachimu Milchotehem, the laws of kings and their wars, it's a fitting name, in which Maimonides discusses the role of the king, how the king is elected, how the king should act, and then has an entire section in chapters five and six where it talks about warfare under the king. And this is all based upon both Torah and then Talmudic commentary. He tries to come up with basic laws of ethical warfare. I thought that perhaps this could inform us a bit on our approach to Syria and judging what's happening and, and how one may intervene. The first thing he does is Halakha 5.1 here, we'll read, says, a king should not wage other wars before a milchemet mitzvah. What is considered as milchemet mitzvah? The war against the seven nations who occupied Eretz Israel, the war against Amalek, and a war fought to assist Israel from an enemy which attacks them. These are wars that are based upon laws given by God in the Torah. The laws of waging war against the seven Canaanite nations, Amalek, which is the people who cut down the weaker Israelites from behind as they are leaving Egypt, and then a basic law to defend Israel and any enemy that rises against them. He now delineates between these types of wars and a second type of war, something that he calls a milchemet reshut, or otherwise it's called, otherwise it's called the milchemet chorev, he may wage a milchemet harashut, a war fought with other nations in order to expand the borders of Israel or magnify its greatness and reputation. Haimonides, there are two types of war. There's the war of need that comes out of the mitzvah, which is a direct commandment from God. And then there is a second type of war, which is done not out of mitzvah, but out of other prerogatives and falls under different rules. And I think that you'll see this informs our own strategy here in the US. On Halakha 5.2, there is no need to seek the permission of the court to wage a milchemet mitzvah. Rather, he, the king, may go out on his own volition and force the nation to go out with him. In contrast, he may not lead the nation out to wage a milchemet tareshut unless the court of 71 judges approves. The Sanhedrin, the court, which would offer jurisprudence over laws with the king and with the, with the population, with the community. 
Here, if it's a type of a war, which is not a war of defense or war rather of law of Torah, but a war of choice, the king cannot declare it on their own. They have to go to the Sanhedrin, what we would call in modern day Congress, much like the War Powers Act, and must get permission from the Sanhedrin before going out to war. In this way, it would seem as though our president's current moves in appealing to Congress for permission under the War Powers Act before acting against Syria would dovetail very much with the Jewish values set forth here by Maimonides in Halakha 5.2. Then there's this last part here that comes under the mitzvah of Baal Tashchit, one may not waste. In Deuteronomy, there is a section that says that we may not cut down fruit-bearing trees when besieging a city because those fruit-bearing trees have been there longer than us. And moreover, the idea is that if you cut down a fruit-bearing tree, then people cannot eat from them, and you are punishing the general population as well as the wildlife in the area. So from this, Maimonides and other sages derive a greater, a, a wider view of the of Baal Tashchit, though one may, may not waste. He writes, anyone who breaks utensils, tears garments, destroys buildings, stops up a spring, or ruins food with a destructive intent, transgresses the command of do not destroy, Baal Tashchit. However, he is not lashed. Instead, he receives stripes for rebellious conduct as instituted by the sages. Basically, there are different degrees of punishment, and Maimonides is saying this is a lesser degree, but still it is absolutely punishable when someone in the middle of war indiscriminately affects the environment or ruins food, does something with destructive intent to harm or kill on a grand scale. I think the question we have to ask ourselves when looking at Halakha 610 here is, if another nation transgresses the basic laws of warfare, does this provide us sufficient reason to attack and go to war? If we're going to agree that Bashar has, has gone against the basic rules, the ethics of ruling a nation by indiscriminately killing civilians and doing things to harm the overall wildlife where he lives, is this enough for us to act? On one hand, we can see the use of chemical weapons as a danger against other nations, and therefore the war would become one of self-defense. On the other hand, we can also look to the Jewish ethic of pikuach nefesh, of saving lives. In Judaism, we believe that life comes before all else, and ultimately, anything we do must save as many lives as possible. If so, warfare is justified when it saves lives in the net. So for example, World War II can be justified on the basis that despite the major loss of lives that occurred during that conflict, ultimately it served to save lives in the long term. Similarly, in US politics, the same reasoning was given between uh, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki as well. Can we get involved in order to prevent the overall loss of lives? So let's restate here overall what we've learned to date. A war of choice, of chova, or otherwise called reshut, should indeed be taken to the Sanhedrin or in our modern day Congress for community appeal, as this is not a decision that we should take lightly. Maimonides reminds us that all attempts for peace and negotiation should be made. In fact, 
the Talmud tells us that when besieging a city, you must besiege it only from three of four sides so that its inhabitants must be able to flee. And if people change their mind, even after they have turned down a peace offering, they should be able to leave peacefully. We understand here that war must have clear goals and limited scope under the ethic of pikuach nefesh. Ultimately, the real goal must be saving lives, and anything done which does not serve this goal should not be taken upon, especially in a foreign entanglement. Ultimately, we are trying to save lives. Finally, I wanted to include this last text, which I find perhaps the most provoking of all of that we've looked at when talking about foreign involvement and entanglements. Numbers Rabbah, when commenting upon Psalm 34:15, writes, Great is peace, for all blessings are contained in it, as it is written, seek peace and pursue it. Great is peace, for God's name is peace. The law does not command you to run after or pursue the other commandments, but only to fulfill them upon the appropriate occasion. But peace you must seek in your own place and pursue it even to another place as well. Here, the rabbis are working under the idea of omnisignificance. There's no extra word in the Torah. And if it says to seek peace and to pursue it, there must be an additional meaning for pursue. It can't just be a synonym with seek. To seek peace, they're saying, is to do so here. You should seek peace in your community yourself. But you should be a rodef shalom. You should pursue peace so much so that we are instructed to leave our own communities and perhaps you can read this even, that we are mandated to embroil ourselves in foreign conflict if it is for the sake of pursuing peace and if it is the sake of pikuach nefesh. Now, I'm not here this evening to tell you exactly what to do or what to think about what to do in Syria. It is obviously such a complex and tragic issue. Moreover, I wanted to show you that Judaism has a seat at the table in, in tough decisions and terrible times such as this. So I hope that these texts for you will be of help and support as you yourself think about what we as a country should be doing in Syria, in Egypt, and other parts of the world, and ultimately to become Rodfei Shalom ourselves, pursuers of peace, both in our homes, in our communities, and abroad. With that, I wish you a peaceful Shabbat, the Shabbat of return, and may, I'm sure you all join me in the hope that those inhabitants of Syria, in Israel, in Egypt, and all of the countries in the area, may they find security and peace ultimately, and may they be sheltered from harm. Amen. On page 586, we find the blessing Alenu. Alenu, which you heard, maybe you didn't notice this, comes from the shofar service of Rosh Hashanah, and was thought to be such a wonderful blessing of God's kingship that it later became part of the regular liturgy. But Aleinu also is a statement of an ideal world to come, a world without war, without conflict, a world in which God's name will be one and we will be one. So I ask you to please join us in this prayer for the future of peace on page 586. Please rise.
עלינו לשבח לאדון הכל, לתת גדולה ליוצר בראשית, שלא עשנו כגויי ארצות, ולא שמענו כמשפחות האדמה, שלא שם חלקנו כהם, וגור עלינו ככל המונם, ואנחנו משתחווים ומודים לפני מלך מלכי המלכים הקדוש ברוך הוא. 